If you work in the nursery, or you have worked in the nursery, make sure you see Candy. She has a a peace offering (laughs) from me to you. We're continually running late. Just so you know, the nursery, everyone serves, a lot of people do a lot of stuff here, but I just want to point out, the nursery workers get here, and they have to be in there by 10 o'clock. And they're in there sometimes for two hours because I don't stop talking (laughs) with the little children. And we're very thankful for them. We're very thankful for them. So if you give them a round of applause. I don't know if that means I'll stop going late, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best, babe. She gave me one of those looks. So Anyway. Mark 13, or Mark 13, page 850, if you're using one of those blue church Bibles. And we'll be, Lord willing, concluding this chapter, looking at verses 24 through 37. I was in jury duty. Well, I was there to go to jury duty. I never actually was called in, but I was there, and they show this video about the jury system. You know about it, Lewis, right? You were there recently. And they said something. They're talking about our form of government and our legal system. They're talking about how it's really superior. It has problems, no doubt, but superior to other forms of government or legal systems in the world. But they said something on there that struck me, so I wrote it down. They said, never again will we be judged by powers out of our control. And they're talking about that because we have a democracy and so the jury system means that we'll be judged by our peers and we don't have a dictator just sending us off to prison or telling us we're going to be murdered, but we have this whole legal system. I I get all that. The only thing is, it's just not an accurate statement. One day this world will be judged by powers completely outside of their control. The king will come. And he will lay down the law. Just something to think about as we talk about today this, the premillennial return of Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about. This idea that Christ returns prior to his rule and reign on this earth at the end of the tribulation period. And so we call it the premillennial return of Christ because the millennial refers to his thousand year reign. Pre means he comes prior to this thousand year reign or this kingdom. And that's why we refer to that. Last week we talked about the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, which means the church will be raptured or caught up to Christ prior to the tribulation period, prior to the coming of Christ to begin his millennial reign. Saying all that, let's just read the text. Mark 13, beginning in 24, and then we'll jump in to the text after a little bit of context. Mark 13, 24. But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near 
at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This morning we'll consider three details from Jesus' words here about his future return to earth so that we might be informed about it and full of hope because of it. Those three points are in your outline on the left-hand side inside of your bulletins, if you have a bulletin. The first one is a shocking arrival, the second one a simple lesson, and the third one a serious warning. So we'll come back to these points and we'll begin to move through the text. But before I do that, let me just kind of bring us up to speed, give a little context so we know where we are here in Mark 13. Jesus' disciples correctly understood, and a lot of this is review and I understand, but it's good to review, They correctly understood Jesus to be the promised Christ or Messiah. Mark 8, 29. This is the same Messiah, and we've talked about this. Messiah and Christ are interchangeable words. They refer to the same thing. This Messiah or Christ is the one spoken about by God through the prophets and recorded in the scriptures. And when we refer to the scriptures in this case, I'm talking about the Old Testament because that's what they would have had, that's what they would have known, and that's what revealed the Messiah and the Christ. Now, Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, a ministry, by the way, that was primarily directed toward the Jewish people or the nation of Israel, began with this significant proclamation by Jesus. Just to remind you, this was back in Mark 1. He said this. This is how he began his ministry to the nation. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 And just to, just to give you like a little lesson in context, when he says there, repent and believe in the gospel, we need to be careful. Because we might import our understanding, the full understanding of what the gospel entails today, right? He wasn't telling them, repent and believe in my death on the cross on behalf of sinners. It hadn't happened yet. Gospel simply means good news. So when he's talking to them about this good news, he's talking to them about the good news of the kingdom of God. This gospel has now taken on fuller meaning because we know that we can have access into that kingdom of God through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And so the gospel for us now in this age, we understand it to include all of these things. But it is the good news. It is the good news that he came proclaiming about that kingdom. Now at the end of Jesus' three and a half year ministry, he and his disciples were approaching Jerusalem. 
This brings us to where we are now in Mark. Which, according to Scripture, is the great city where the Messiah or Christ will one day rule over the world in, guess what? The kingdom of God. So because of these things, the disciples were anticipating that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And we looked at this in Luke 19.11 a few weeks ago. I mentioned this. That's what the text says. Here's the Christ. Here's the Messiah. We're, ended, we're at the end of His ministry. We're approaching the city of Jerusalem where the King will rule and reign. They think this is it. But the kingdom was not established when Jesus came to Jerusalem. Rather, Jesus was killed in Jerusalem. He was killed. Now, of course, Jesus had been telling his disciples on more than one occasion that he was going to be killed and rise again on the third day, right? Three times it's recorded in the scriptures that he tried to explain that to his disciples. But Luke 18, 31 and 34 informs us that his disciples did not understand. They didn't get it. They just couldn't see it. How did that make sense? Why would the king be killed? So in Mark 13, while in Jerusalem, a few days now, before he will be killed, crucified, hung on a cross to die on Friday, he is leaving the temple with his disciples. And he makes this prediction about the temple's destruction. We saw that at the beginning of Mark 13. And that prediction prompted the disciples to ask some questions like, what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. What will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? We see that specifically in Matthew 24, verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming? Coming for what? He's already there. Well, this coming can only be a reference, beloved, to his coming to establish the kingdom at the close of the age. That's the coming they're asking about. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they foresaw was going to happen. Why, though, did Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple make the disciples think about this coming of the kingdom? Why? Well, we looked at it. They were already anticipating, according to Luke, its immediate appearance. They knew Jesus to be the King, the Messiah, the Christ. They're approaching Jerusalem. Even the people in Jerusalem are hailing Him as King. Add to that the Old Testament prophecies that the Jews would have been familiar with, those specifically found in Zechariah 14, and we've talked about this before, that speak of the King or the Lord of hosts, one day ruling over the world from Jerusalem, but not before all of the nations come against Jerusalem for battle and devastate the city. And once you put all these pieces together, then you can start to understand why they thought that this prediction about the temple's destruction must have been an event related to the battle that they see in Zechariah 14, a battle that would take place just prior to the king coming back and crushing the enemies and setting up his kingdom. Now, fast forward to Acts 1-3. You don't have to turn there yet. 
But fast forward. In fact, go ahead and turn to page of X1. Turn to Acts 1. Page 909. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So a few books to the right if you're in Mark. And don't start reading the text, but let me just read this. Let me just explain something to you. This now is after Jesus has been killed and resurrected. Okay, that's the timing. That's the setting. That's the context. He has been crucified. He has been resurrected, but he has not yet ascended to the Father. And we are told here in Acts that he appeared to his disciples after he has resurrected, but before he has ascended, there's a time period. Ascended meaning gone back to the Father in heaven. He appeared to his disciples for 40 days. Why? To speak to them about the kingdom of God. That's interesting. The kingdom that God had promised to the nation of Israel to be a blessing, beloved, to the entire world. So this is not just for Israel, but it was made to Israel, a covenant made with Israel, that they might become a blessing to the entire world. Now imagine that, 40 days of Jesus talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. I have no doubt during this time that he was now assuring his disciples that God's promises in relation to this kingdom remained. They remained. They were still valid. The kingdom that they had hoped for was still coming even though it did not come when Jesus came the first time. Now look at it with me, and I'll show you this. Luke, Act, or Acts, sorry, Acts 1. Let's just read through it. And I also want you to catch something else here before we jump into our text. So, when they had come together, this is, this is prior, Acts 1 through, 1 through 5 tells you about him meeting with them for 40 days and talking to them about the kingdom of God. You can read it there in your Bibles. But this is after they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? So remember, he's been talking to them for 40 days about the kingdom. They're fired up. He's not telling them, hey, forget the whole kingdom thing. Okay? I don't even know what you guys were thinking. That's not going to take place. That's not going to happen. Or, it's already happened, you just don't even realize it. None of that. Forty days of instruction, and here's the question they come up with. Okay, Lord, okay, is it now? Is it now when you're going to do it? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But let me tell you what is going to happen. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Just remember that phrase. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, these are angels, we believe, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay. Kingdom hasn't come yet. He's been talking to them in the kingdom for 40 days. He says, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Here's your business until I come back and establish my kingdom. Tell people about Jesus Christ. 
I'm empowering you to be witnesses here and the cities beyond and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Tell them about the kingdom. Tell them about my sacrifice that they might enter into that kingdom. And then he leaves. And the angels say, listen guys, don't trip. Okay, I'm adding that in, I understand. He's coming back in the same way you saw him leave. That brings us to the first detail of Jesus' future return to earth. And I'm calling this a shocking arrival. One day, beloved, Jesus will come to earth in the same way that he left the earth. In clouds. In fact, we just read about that in Mark. See the connection. Mark 13, 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. By the way, you can see that in the first chapter of Revelation also. The same reference to coming in clouds, Jesus coming in the clouds. I just want you to see that connection, but it says, and then, and then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. When is then? Well, jump back to Mark 13, 24, starting there. It says, but in those days, those days after that tribulation, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. When will the Son of Man come in clouds with great power and glory? It will be in those days after that tribulation. And that tribulation, beloved, is referring to the one that is recorded in Mark 13.19 in the same context. Mark 13.19, for in Those days, just let your eyes wander back up, for in those days, and remember, those days are now after the abomination of desolation has occurred. Mark 13, 14. There will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. When will the Son of Man come and return with great power and glory in the clouds in those days after that great tribulation period that is referred to in Mark 13:19 sometime in the future beloved a time of hardship will come upon this earth like the world has never known and will ever never again it's probably bad english will never know they'll never know now that tribulation is detailed for us in revelation chapter 6 6 through chapter 19 chapter 6 through 19 and remember i talked about this last Weak, I believe, because I believe in a pre-tribulation or rapture, I believe the church will not be here for this tribulation period. They will be gone. But at the end of the tribulation, Christ will come with great power and glory, and it will be a day of incredible shock to this unbelieving and rebellious world. Because that's all who will be left when he comes back. Jesus said there will be cosmological catastrophes regarding the sun, moon, and stars. And I see no reason to try to spiritualize this, but to understand it exactly as it's being explained. Some stuff is going to happen that no one is going to be able to explain. No scientist, no person. Things regarding the sun, the moon, and the stars that will 
freak the world out. It will be observable to all and it will defy all human understanding. And while this all might seem a little strange to us, this description that Jesus uses for his return, beloved, it's actually pulled right from the Old Testament. Now, most people, they just don't even study the Old Testament anymore. Even Christians, which is a mistake, a big mistake. Because that's the context for understanding the New Testament. But anyway, just so you know, verse 24, it actually comes from some phrasing in Joel 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3. Verse 25, these references to the sun and the moon and the stars is what I'm talking about. Verse 25 actually comes from some phrases in Isaiah 13 and 34, those chapters. And verse 26, the Son of Man coming in the clouds comes right from Daniel 7. All Old Testament passages. So these were not like crazy new ideas being presented by some psychedelic Jesus. Any of you of the 60s generation, you understand what I just said. But the rest of you, I'm not sure. But he's not tripping out. He's not like, whoa, man, like the sun, you know, it's going to go dark. And the moon and stars are going to be like falling from heaven when I come back. He's not, he's not just tripping right now. He's not making this stuff up trying to impress his audience. He pulls these statements right out of the Old Testament. And the context of these statements in the Old Testament are picturing or describing the final events of the current world or age. If you go back, that's what they're pointing to. The close of the age. And you start to realize, wow, this is... This all makes sense. I mentioned that Jesus' words in verse 26 are taken from or refer to Daniel 7. By the way, for those of you who don't know, this is the same Daniel that was preserved in the lion's den. Unfortunately, that's all many Christians know about Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. Because that's a story they're told in Sunday school or nursery or I don't know, but there's so much more to Daniel. Daniel has been called the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament book of Revelation because Daniel, like John, who wrote Revelation, was given divine visions, divine visions about future history, including significant end-time events, which is exactly what we have recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. You don't have to turn there, just look up. Here's where this phraseology comes from that Jesus was using in describing His return. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. Just without developing this, the Ancient of Days is a reference to the Father. God the Father. He came to the Ancients of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory. And what? A kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, everyone, from every tribe and tongue, should serve Him. And then it says, 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Hallelujah. Back to Mark 13, 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Wow. When the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, comes in the clouds with great power and glory, He will be given a kingdom by God to rule over. One that will never be destroyed. Then just look down so we can close this section out. Mark 13.27 says, And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Remember, this occurs at the end of the tribulation period. That's what we've been looking at. That's what the context insists upon. So Jesus, at the end of this period, will gather together all the elect believers from every corner of the earth who have come out of the tribulation period alive. There will be some. That they might now enter into the everlasting kingdom of God that will never be destroyed. Beloved, we're already there with Him. He brings the church with Him. Now He gathers together those who are alive and have committed their lives to Him to enter into His kingdom. Game over for this corrupted and perverted world. Game on for our glorious and righteous Christ. Now let me add this. Jesus' arrival will be shocking. Not only because of what happens when He comes and the manner in which He comes, but also because of who it is that comes. The Jews, beloved, do not, the unbelieving Jews, those who do not recognize Jesus to be the Messiah, those who are still waiting for the Messiah, will be greatly shocked. And in fact, in Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says, they will look on Him, the One they have pierced, And they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps for a firstborn. The reference is to your child, only child, or your firstborn dying. It's the same, that's the idea here. And the pain and the anguish that comes with that, they will see Jesus who they rejected and they will be able now to recognize Him and know that He is and was the Messiah their Messiah, their Christ. And they will repent. They won't be the only ones who are shocked, beloved. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7 through seven, talks about scoffers. Scoffers. That will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Hey, that's, that's today, isn't it? We see that. People think Christians are idiots. Fools. You've been talking about His coming for 2,000 years. Where is it? Come on, Jesus, come. 
He will. They'll be shocked. Now, I'm just going to jump right into the next point here, and that's a simple lesson. Shocking arrival, a simple lesson. It's, it's, and, I, and I said it's a simple lesson because it's not meant to be complicated or deep or mysterious or have some secret meaning. That's not the intent here. Jesus never implied that. And though people have given all kinds of crazy meanings to this simple lesson, that was not Jesus' point. It's a simple lesson. Look at the text with me. Mark 13, 28 through 31. So Jesus says, look, the Son of Man, He's coming. He's coming. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, so let's, we're going to break it down. We're going to break this down. Jesus used an illustration that everyone in his context and his surroundings, they would have been familiar with. And he, he used it to teach a lesson about his future coming. He did this regularly. In Palestine, the area where Jesus was, most trees there are evergreen. So, if you don't know what that means, it just means that they keep their leaves throughout the year. They don't drop their foliage or all of their foliage. But the fig tree is an exception. Okay? The fig tree in the fall loses its leaves. But in the spring, the sap in the tree begins to flow out to the branches, making them tender or softening them. And leaves begin to appear on this barren tree. An observer of, a tr- of that tree, of this fig tree, living in Palestine, would know by the tenderness of the branches and the new leaves on that tree that winter has passed, spring has arrived, and summer is just around the corner. That's it. Okay? That's the simple illustration and message that Jesus is trying to communicate. So he says now, when you, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Just like the fig tree, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. What things? We've got to answer that question. What things taking place? Okay, now we've got to remember the context. The disciples are asking What will be the sign of His coming and the close of the age? We get that from Matthew 24, 3. What will be the sign, Jesus, of Your coming and the close of the age? Now, this is review. In Mark 13, 5-13, Jesus begins to explain to them that there will be false Christ. Wars. Rumors of wars. Problems among nations. Earthquakes in various places. Famines. Religious persecution. But these are not, not, according to the text, the signs of the end, but they are only the beginning of birth pains. And we talked about that and we said, compared to a woman's labor pains, labor could go very long, labor could be very short. All the beginning of birth pains tell us is that a baby is coming, but it doesn't tell us when. However, in verse 14, he says this of Mark 13, But, 
When you see, we, we want a sign. When you see, ding, 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 ding. This is what you're looking for. The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. And we talked about that. We talked about that's the reality that the Antichrist will establish himself in a position of power, make a covenant with the nation of Israel. He will stand in the temple and he will demand to be worshipped as God. It is the abomination that leads to desolation or a vacating of that holy temple. And we can't review all that now. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then he goes on to talk about the great tribulation that accompanies those days after the abomination of desolation, verse 19, so terrible are those days, Mark says, that if it continued on, no human being would survive. Okay? Just to give you an idea of the ferociousness of those days. That's in verse 20. And then he says, after that tribulation, the Son of Man returns. That's the flow. That's the context. So based on that, the identifiable things, the, these things taking place, that they would be able to see, just like the branch getting soft and the trees on the fig tree, those identifiable things are the things that are referred to in verses 14 through 23. That is the abomination that causes desolation and the great tribulation that surrounds that event. So let me say it one more time to close it up. Just like the fig tree, when you see these things, you can know that His coming is near or just around the corner. And there is not much more time before the end or the close of the age and the coming of the kingdom. That's what He's telling them. Now a few more things that I think will be helpful to you. I hope. Mark 13.29. Look back at the text. So also when you see these things, the events of 14 through 23, verse 14 through 23, taking place, you know that, what's it say? He is near at the very gates. Now, some of your Bible translations have the word it. If you are holding a New International Version or a New King James Version, Instead of he, it says it. You know it is near. The ESV and the New American Standard Bible have the word he. Why? Well, the reason for the difference is the verb here in the original writing, is, the verb is, has no stated subject. It's not connected to anything, so it could or may refer to a person. He is, and that's how the ESV and NASB or New American Standard Bible have chosen to translate it, and that would be a reference to Christ, or to an event. It is. It is near. So let me teach you or maybe just remind you of one important Bible interpretation rule, a rule when we're trying to figure out what the Bible is teaching us. When we have a verse that is difficult or unclear, and we have another verse that is related to that verse that is more clear or easier to understand, then we go with the one that is easier or more clear to understand. It wins the day to help us understand the harder or more difficult one to understand. Does that make sense to you? 
I'm not going to try to draw my conclusions from the difficult passage if I have a passage over here that clearly says how I should understand this passage. You got me so far? Good. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Turn one book to the right. Luke 21, looking at verses 29 through 31, page 881 in your church Bibles, blue Bibles. Same story here in a different gospel. Verse 29, And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And all the trees. So there's other trees that do this fig tree thing, but many of them are evergreen. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves, you know that the summer is already near. Okay, that sounds familiar, right? So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the what? Kingdom of God is near. And just so you're clear, whether it be the NIV, the NASB, the New King James, I'm missing one, or the English Standard Version, or whatever version, they all say the same thing there. There's no doubt about it. Kingdom of God is near. The coming of the kingdom, beloved, is inseparable from the coming of Christ. They're linked. They're linked. Since he is the king of the kingdom, whether it is translated in Mark as it is near or he is near, the meaning is the same. When you see these things taking place, you know that Christ and his kingdom are near. You see that? All right, Mark 13.30. A couple more difficult stuff, things we've got to work through, and we're almost there. Look back at the text in Mark, back to your left, Mark 13.30. He says, truly I say to you, truly I say to you, this is absolutely, you can take this to the bank, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. All these things. All right. This statement by Jesus has caused a great deal of needless controversy in the Christian community. Was Jesus implying that the generation alive at the time that he said these words, this generation, would not die until they saw him come in great power and glory as described in Mark 13:24 through 27 and establish the kingdom of God on earth? Because he said it, it was going to... All these things would take place before this generation passes away. The abomination of desolation, the tribulation, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and the kingdom of God. If that is what Jesus meant, then He was wrong. If He was trying to communicate to that audience there that the people standing there would see all these things take place, would not pass away. That generation would not pass away. Beloved, it didn't happen. So it cannot be what he means. It cannot be what he means. And by the way, if it is what he meant, and it's not, but if it is what he meant, why would he go on to say that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return in the next verse, in verse 32? Verse 32. 
But then he makes a bold statement that everything he just described about the end time events, which includes his coming, coming, would take place before that generation perishes or expires. That doesn't make any sense. He's contradicting himself if that's the case right in the, in the same phraseology here. Hey, you guys will not pass away before all these things come about. By the way, I have no idea when it's happening. There is no controversy here, beloved. People want to make a controversy out of it, but there is no controversy here. All these things, the abomination of desolation, the tribulation, the Son of Man coming to set up His kingdom, are events related to the close of the age. And it is the generation, this generation that sees these things. The generation that sees these things. That generation those who are alive at the time when these things begin to take place, they will not pass away until all is fulfilled. Period. Simple. No controversy. By the way, how will anybody know for certain that they are part of that final generation? The text says, because they will see the abomination of desolation and they will experience the tribulation. And if they have learned the lesson of the fig tree, they will know that these events indicate that the kingdom of God, the return of Christ, is near and will take place before that final generation passes away. The reality that this final generation will not pass away, by the way, until all these things take place is, is really a message of grace because it provides assurance that the terrible tribulation that's referred to in Mark 13, the one that will be worse than the world has ever known, the one that if continued on, no man would survive, it assures them that it will not go on and on and on, extending to one generation to the next but it has a limited duration. The generation that's alive when these events begin to take place will not pass away until the consummation of all these things takes place. The return of the King in power and glory coming in the clouds to establish His kingdom. Look back at the text with me. Now Jesus makes a statement about the certainty of all these things happening just as He has said, Mark 13, 31. He says all that and He says, listen, heaven and earth will pass away. You better believe it. But My words will not pass away. This heaven and earth, beloved, is not permanent. In fact, it is scheduled for destruction on God's calendar in the future. 2 Peter 3, verse 7, 11 through 13. But one thing that is permanent, one thing that will never pass away, is Jesus' words. They have eternal validity. One writer puts it this way, The certitude and absolute reliability of Jesus' words is far greater than the apparent continuance of this universe. The simple lesson, beloved, of the fig tree will be of the utmost importance to those people living in that final generation who come to faith in Christ, and there will be many, 
who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Because during this horrific time on earth, they will be assured that Jesus' return is very near. And they will hold on to that certain hope. Finally, a serious warning. A serious warning. Mark 13, back to the text. A shocking arrival, a simple lesson, a serious warning. But concerning that day, verse 32, sorry, Mark 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Verse 33. Be on guard. I just want you to recognize the underlines here. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. That's the second occurrence here. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Four times Jesus communicates the same message. Which means don't fall asleep. Keep or stay awake. Okay? That's what he's saying. Here again, like the fig tree, he uses a common illustration that they would have understood to teach an important lesson. The lesson is about the necessity to stay awake or be alert in the context for Christ's coming. Right? Since no one knows the day or the hour when that will occur except the Father. And by the way, the Father knows it because He has sovereignly planned it. Acts 1.7. Just write it down. You can look it up. Fixed, it says, these events are. Fixed by the Father. So God is not just waiting till things work out and then He'll bring this all about. He is bringing it about. He has a fixed appointment on the calendar. So the hearer in this story, Jesus tells a story of a man who owns an estate, right? That's all this is. But he leaves. Sometimes we try to make stuff out of the Bible that it's not there. I don't know why we do that. This is just a very simple story. He says, listen, here's a man. He owns an estate. He leaves and he goes on a trip. You with me so far? And the master of the house tells his doorkeeper. Okay, that's... We can probably figure that out. But back then, this would have been the guy who guarded the outer gate. And this is an estate. So that's a little different for us because we live in, we don't have estates here. But in an estate, it's a big piece of land. It's usually surrounded with a fence or a gate. And the home is inside and there's farming and things like that. The doorkeeper is like the security guard, in a sense, out at the gate. He's the one who allows people to come in. And gain access to the house. So he tells the doorkeeper, you better stay awake. Because the owner could return at any time during the evening or early morning hours. Now you may not, it, you may not see that, that that's what he's referring to there, the evening or early morning hours, but let me just show it to you. There's a reference here to four watches. 
four watches of the night. It's the evening, the midnight, the rooster crows, and the morning. This was the Roman system for, uh, for dividing up the night into four different watches. So they would, you know, they might say, take this watch, take that watch. So the evening watch was from six to nine. Six p.m. to nine p.m. This is the Roman system, six to nine. The midnight watch was from nine to midnight. The rooster crows was the third watch, and that was from 12 to 3 a.m. And in the morning was the watch that ended at 6 a.m., so 3 to 6 a.m. So what you have is Jesus is saying, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., the night, don't go to sleep because you have no idea when I might return during that time period. The warning here is, don't let me come back, find you to sleep, not watching for my return. What do people normally do when evening comes? They sleep, guys. This is not, this is not rock. See, you don't have to be like a seminary student or anything like that to, to, to understand the Bible. So people sleep during the night. That's all he's saying. So I'm going to return. You don't know what hour of the night I might return. And likely that is the time period that you'll be snoring. And when I come back, I expect a doorkeeper to be there and let me in. So don't you dare go to sleep. So is Jesus saying people shouldn't sleep until Jesus returns? Right? Is that what he's saying? Because that we all failed then, right? So it's not physical sleep, but spiritually, yes. We should not go to sleep spiritually. And guess what? Luke helps us understand that even better in Luke chapter 21, back to that Gospel, verse 34. You don't have to turn there. Here's how Luke frames it and states it. But watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Stay awake. Be alert. These are all the same type of things. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. I don't, you know, I don't know if you know what dissipation means. I've read over plenty of times and didn't understand that word. It's, it literally means a headache after uh, drunkenness. The idea there is the, the pain or the consequences that come with unrestrained, self-indulgent, immoral behavior. In other words, a life of debauchery. And this is, this is the, the consequences of that life of debauchery. You're, you're weighed down with your sinful and immoral life. Don't be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Alright, beloved. Here's the bottom line as we begin here to move towards the conclusion. We, we do not know the day or the hour that Christ will return to establish His kingdom. We don't know it. There is a certainty about it. He is coming. But not a certainty about the exact timing of it. And in fact, those who are alive to see the abomination that brings desolation and to live through this horrific period on earth called the tribulation, they will know that He is near if 
They have learned the lesson of the fig tree. But even they will not know the exact day or hour of His coming. They too, like us, must not fall asleep or become weighed down with drunkenness and the cares of this life, but keep watching and anticipating the arrival of our King. One commentator puts it this way, the time of our Lord's absence is the world's night. It's the world's night. But it is no time for His servants to yield to its spiritual sleep, to grow unresponsive to the hope of His return. Now I'm going to try to, I don't, didn't know if I was going to do this, but I'm going to try it. I have a couple minutes left. I'm going to try to clear up maybe some confusion that pre-tribulational rapture of the church from last week, post-millennial return of Christ this week. How do we reconcile these things? I, this week we're focused on the pre-millennial return of Christ. I explained to you at the beginning that means that Christ will return after the tribulation period prior to the millennium, pre-millennial, 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ on earth in this glorious kingdom of God promised and described by the Old Testament prophets. Last week, though, we looked at this pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and I said that that is the church being caught up to be with Christ and live with Him in heaven before the tribulation period even begins, before the abomination of desolation occurs. And we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 and some other passages. The text that we are in today is entirely focused on the premillennial return of Christ, not the rapture of the church. Okay? However, the rapture is the first event in a series of consecutive events. Consecutive just means following one after another. The rapture is the first event in a series of consecutive events that culminate or conclude with the final return of Christ to set up His glorious kingdom. So even though the church will not be on the earth when Christ returns at the end, but rather they will be with Him when He comes, we too are commanded to be waiting and watching and anticipating His coming, recognizing that the rapture of the church is really just the first part or phase of His glorious return. The blessed hope then for every generation is the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so it is our duty and every generation's duty to stay awake for His return. Now, here's how I will close this. I said at the beginning, I said during our scripture reading, that there is no way. It would be wonderful if that was the case, but I, I know it not to be true for many reasons. There is no way everyone in here is a true child of the Lord, that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that they are looking and waiting and anticipating for the coming of this King, that they will be saved from the wrath to come. Not everyone in here. So, I asked this question, I've asked this question before. If that is the case for you, then I can answer the question, are you ready, with the answer, no! You are not ready 
You are not ready for the rapture. You are not ready for the Lord to return. And I, and I would assume that some people might say something crazy like this. Well, listen, Jeremy, based on what you've just said, the rapture takes place first, and then the abomination of desolation, and then the tribulation, and those things will indicate to me that the coming of the Lord is near, if I've learned the lesson of the fig tree. So i still got lots of time. Well, besides the fact that people die when you least expect it, Whitney Houston, or any number of people that die when no one expects it. Besides that, and when that happens, the Bible says it's appointed for men once to die, and after this, they face judgment. No second chances, no do-overs, no mulligans. Done, baby. Besides that, there's this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 that has always disturbed me. I'm just going to read it to you. And then I'm going to just say something about it, and then we'll close. 2 Thessalonians 2, he's talking about the coming of the lawless one. He's talking about the abomination of desolation. So he's talking about this period of time during the tribulation. He says... The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They may believe the Antichrist. They may follow after Him and worship Him in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's what one writer says. Is this passage saying that those who do not believe the gospel before the man of sin is revealed, or the abomination of desolation, and who are therefore not caught up to meet the Lord at the rapture, but still live on the earth, cannot be saved after the man of lawlessness has been revealed? Or can people who recognize but knowingly reject the truth of the gospel before the rapture be saved after the rapture takes place? The powerful delusion referred to in verse 11 that God will bring on these individuals in particular suggests that few, if any, then living on earth will be saved after the rapture. This seems to be a special judgment from God that will occur at this one time in history. The many saints which the book of Revelation indicates will be living on the earth during the tribulation. In other words, we know though that a lot of people come to faith during the tribulation. We know that. He says those people may thus be people who did not hear and reject the gospel before the rapture. You know what? I don't don't know if he's right. But it makes me a little nervous. For you who still do not call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, the rapture can occur at any time. And it is very well possible that a strong delusion will be sent on those who have heard the gospel again and again and again and yet rejected it. And so God will give them over to their rebellion to follow after a lie and to worship the Antichrist. And even if that is not the case, why would you tempt the Lord God? Why would you tempt Him like that? I'll do my own thing. I still have time. 
Beloved, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, here I am right here. Come up to me after the service. Let me tell you. Let me explain it to you. Don't die in your sin. And for those who know Jesus Christ, tell somebody, okay? Be on a mission this week. Tell them how they can be saved and be made ready for the return of our King. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the salvation that I have and that many of my dear brothers and sisters sitting in this room have. That we have through the sacrifice made by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, who gave His life willingly laid it down as a substitute in our place, bearing all the guilt of our sin and taking upon Him your very wrath that we deserved, that we might be forgiven, that our sins might have been dealt with through Him, and that we might be given and declared righteous in Your sight, For a great exchange occurred at the cross for those who believe Christ took our sin upon Him that we would not have to endure the condemnation that it deserves. And at that cross, at the moment that we believe, Christ credited to us His perfect life, the one we'll never live, the one we never could live, His righteousness. So we are clothed in it and we stand before You, God, now righteous and forgiven, no longer under condemnation and looking and longing for and anticipating the coming of our King and His holy and righteous kingdom that we might live with Him forever and ever and ever. Father, help us who know that message. Be serious. Be awake. Be alert. There's people all around us. They're dying. They don't know Jesus Christ. Who's going to tell them if we don't? May we be faithful, Father, as we're staying alert, as we're staying awake. We're not just being awake because we can't wait for us to, to take off and for us to be with the Lord, but we're alert and awake and we're telling others. We're telling others. We're warning them. He can return at any time. Be ready. In Jesus' name, amen.